0: We're in Luke chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 57 through 80. Hear now the very word of God. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, even though we're still in chapter one here, there's a lot that's happened so far. I want to give you a quick recap if you haven't been here or if you've forgotten uh, what we've covered so far in Luke. As an overview, the gospel of Luke tells the story of Jesus' life from his birth in Nazareth and ministry in Galilee to his journey to Jerusalem that uh, culminates with his death, resurrection, and ascension. Another way to put this is that the gospel relays how God has fulfilled his covenant promises, that is, the coming of the kingdom in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, as the spirit-anointed Messiah, the Son of Man and the Son of God, comes to bring salvation through the cross and resurrection to the poor, the outcasts, and any and all who turn to God in repentance and faith, to those who are disciples of Jesus. Now, our text this morning recounts the birth of John, not Jesus. However, the birth of John is a pivotal moment in the story and life of Jesus, as, we, as we'll see as we continue this morning and throughout the book of Luke. Luke 1, through 80 is near the end of the birth narratives that begin Luke, the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. Up to this point in the narrative, an angel has visited Zechariah and Mary, and you'll remember uh, that these two interactions went very differently. Zechariah and Mary responded very differently to this angel. While Zechariah doubted, Mary believed, though she did have some questions. And because Zechariah doubted, he has been unable to speak, and he's also been deaf uh, throughout the pregnancy of Elizabeth, up until the point of John's birth where we see that his mouth is finally opened. Now, a lot of this may seem like unnecessary background info or filler until we get to the birth of Jesus. Like, isn't this about Jesus? Can't we just get to the birth of Jesus? Why do we have to worry about all this other stuff? But our text this morning is a profound text that shows us so much about God and about ourselves. And like I said earlier, in God's providence, I think this is a very timely text for us to look at going into the new year. As we look at our text this morning, there are two different points that we're going to look at. We'll see God's faithfulness demonstrated in verses 57 through 66, and we'll see God's faithfulness celebrated in verses 67 through 80. Let's look first at God's faithfulness demonstrated in verses 57 through 66 through the birth of John. First, verses 57 through 58 say, now the time for Elizabeth to give birth Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Again, this may seem like just standard background information, but even within these few verses, there are some profound truths to meditate on. The very first evidence of God's faithfulness is in verse 58. Elizabeth gives birth, and she gives birth to a son. Now you might be thinking, yeah, of course she gives birth to a son, duh. But we have to remember that this is a time period where infant mortality rates were significantly higher. Pregnancies were often more complicated. Pair that with the fact that this is a son, not a daughter. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think there were any gender reveal parties back in these days. They couldn't go to the doctor and get a sonogram and find out the gender of their baby, right? The parents had no idea. what baby they were going to have until that baby was born. The angel told Zechariah that he would have a son and to name him John. Well imagine if on that day Elizabeth gives birth to a daughter and for nine months Zechariah and Elizabeth have been going around saying an angel told us that we were going to have a son. We're so excited and then a daughter is born. Even this small detail that Elizabeth bears a son is an example of God's faithfulness. God said they were going to have a son, and they did. Second, we see in verse 58 that Elizabeth and Zechariah's neighbors and relatives were rejoicing with them. Well, if you look back at verse 14 when the angel was visiting Zechariah, we read, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Again, such small details that prove The Lord's faithfulness, especially towards Zechariah, who, remember, initially doubted what the angel had told them. These small instances of faithfulness from God are a mercy from God towards Zechariah and his family, showing even though he doesn't have to, that he is trustworthy and faithful to his word. I don't know about you, but I think I have a tendency to downplay or miss entirely the faithfulness of God in the seemingly small things that happen in life. When I think of the faithfulness of God, my mind immediately goes to big things, just kind of general faithfulness that God is, gen- is faithful in the general sense, that he, has, you know, he sent his son and he's faithful to what he says, and to just not get into the nitty-gritty details of his faithfulness. One of the hardest things for me to pray is give me this day my daily bread. This reference, is a, this reference of this prayer is when the people of Israel were in the wilderness in Exodus and each day God would send manna from heaven to sustain them. And they weren't permitted, they weren't allowed to keep any extra uh, that they had at the end of the day and so each day they had to trust God to provide for them. A lot of times I like to pray or act more like, God, give me this week or this month, my weekly or monthly bread. I don't want to trust him each and every day because that requires surrender on my part in admitting that I'm not in control. What about you? Do you notice the faithfulness of God in everyday life? Is your mind stayed on God? Or do you put him on the shelf and just keep him out of sight until you need him again and take him down. How often do we consider the faithfulness of God in our everyday lives? Another challenging thought that arises here is that if I'm going to be reminded of his faithfulness, then I need to know what he promises. I actually have to know what his promises are, which means knowing, reading, and meditating on his word. Now, as we continue to read on, we're again reminded of God's faithfulness demonstrated. We see in verse 59, they circumcised the child on the eighth day according to the covenant made with Abraham. Every male child was circumcised in Israel in accord with the covenant made with Abraham, as we see in Genesis 17, as well as in Leviticus 12, that it's mandated to be on the eighth day. Since Zechariah and Elizabeth observed God's commands, we're not surprised to see that they followed the law's prescription. After all, Zechariah was a priest who was faithfully performing his duties despite there being 400 years of silence from God from the last word of the Old Testament until now. Everything seems to be going very normally for a Jewish boy's birth until it comes time to name him. It was again custom for the son to be named after his father or his grandfather, and that's what all the friends and relatives expected but Elizabeth surprises everybody when she says, no, he shall be called John. Everyone looks at each other like John. They start asking the relatives, Do you, is anybody in your family named John? You have someone in your family named John? Pull out the family tree, trace it up. There's Nobody named John in our family. I'm sure if they had Ancestry.com or 23andMe, they would have pulled that out too and tried to find somebody named John, right? They're so confused that they think, let's ask the deaf-mute guy what he wants to name the kid because clearly Elizabeth doesn't know what's going on. Zechariah, possibly unaware of what's going on because he is deaf and mute, simply takes the tablet and writes, his name is John. Notice he doesn't say his name should be John or I think I like the name John. He simply states his name is John. Here we see a directly opposite response of faith from Zechariah than when he was visited by the angel. Before, he responded in disbelief and questioned, how can this be? I'm too old. My wife is advanced in years. We cannot, this is not going to happen. This is impossible. Here, he responds in total faith in the face of those around him who are confused. He's so sure of what God has promised that he makes this absolute proclamation. God told me his name would be John, so his name is John. As we look at this section of the text as a whole, there's a theme that continues to pop up. After Zechariah states his name is John, it says that all the people wondered or they marveled or were in awe. And immediately after, his tongue is loosed and he can speak again. And what's the first thing he does? He blesses God. And it goes on to say that this news and this word spread through all the hill country and people were continually amazed. Notice here that every time people are amazed, are rejoicing, are marveling, what are Elizabeth and Zechariah doing? When Elizabeth's neighbors come to rejoice with her, what do they hear from Elizabeth? That the Lord has shown great mercy to her. When it comes time to name their child, what do they name him? John, which means God is our salvation. When Zechariah's mouth is finally opened, what does he do? He blesses God. At every opportunity, what do these two do? They brag on God, not on themselves. Elizabeth doesn't say, I know I'm old, but can you believe I pulled this off? Or you won't believe this pill that I took that finally got me to have a baby. I went to the best OB in Judea and she finally got me to have a child. No, she acknowledges that she is pregnant for one reason and one reason alone. God has shown her mercy. Not because she was a good pastor's wife or a good priest's wife or because she was perfectly obedient to the law. She was better than her neighbors, but for one reason. Because God showed her mercy because of who God is not who she is. When Zechariah's mouth is finally opened, he didn't respond in bitterness and say, can you believe God shut my mouth for nine months? That seems a little excessive. Or even, man, I'm glad I don't have to use sign language anymore. But he opens his mouth, and the first thing that comes from his lips are praise and blessing towards God. When they had an opportunity to brag on themselves, they instead turned all the attention towards God, and brag on God because they recognize that everything they have is from God. What about you? Are you quick to make much of God or are you quick to make much of yourself? When people read your Facebook or your Instagram, do they think this person makes much of God? Or your Christmas letter? How many Christmas letters sound like man? did we really blow it this year? Here's all the ways we failed, but God is still good. Now, I'm not saying you can't be proud of your spouse or your kids or your grandkids or any of these things, but if we brag on our kids, our grandkids, our spouse, eventually, inevitably, they will fail us. They will let us down. If we look to things other than God for our supreme happiness, our supreme fulfillment, if we steer every conversation back towards things that make us look good, we will always find that we will be disappointed. But if we brag on God, he will never fail. He is and always has been faithful. Even the little phrase that ends this portion of the text, for the hand of the Lord was with him speaks of God's faithfulness. The hand of the Lord refers to his special work. We see it throughout scripture. We see it uh, in the plague upon the livestock in Egypt in Exodus 9. We see it in his gracious presence in the lives of Elijah in 1 Kings 18 and Ezra and Ezra uh, Ezra 7 and Ezekiel and Ezekiel 1. These are all places where we see the hand of the Lord. Just as the hand of the Lord was upon these prophets, he will be with John. God demonstrates his faithfulness in multiple ways in just these few verses. Now as we move to the longer portion of the text, we see God's faithfulness celebrated. This prophecy by Zechariah is often referred to as the Benedictus. It's the first word of Zechariah's prophecy in Latin, which means blessed, Benedictus. The section can be split into two distinct sections. One, we see Zechariah praise God for fulfilling his covenant promise and bringing Israel a savior in verses 68 through 75. And then two, Zechariah gives praise for the role of his son, John the Baptist, in verses 76 through 79. Again, Zechariah's response to what God has done, not only in bringing him a son, but what that son represents, namely The coming of Christ is to burst out into praise. Let's look first at the first section here as Zechariah gives praise to God for fulfilling his covenant promise to send a Savior to his people. One of the first things you might notice about this section of the text is that it's all in the past tense. It's past tense, yet he's speaking about something that hasn't happened yet. He's talking about the coming Savior that will deliver him and his people, yet Jesus has not been born yet. He's talking about the Savior that will deliver him and his people, and yet the one that will do that has not been born. This is a tense that's known as the prophetic past to use when speaking about what God will do in the future, but because it is God who is doing it, it is so sure that the prophet speaks about it as if it's already happened. Can you imagine if you and I tried to talk like this, how often we would be wrong. Like if back in August I had said, Georgia has won the 2023-2024 national championship. I'd look pretty silly right now, not to rub any salt in any wounds. But we don't know what the next five minutes holds, let alone the next five days or five years. But when speaking about something that God has promised to do, Zechariah is so sure that it will come to pass that he speaks as if it's already been accomplished. And then as we look at the rest of this section, Zechariah takes us on a journey through Scripture to see the covenant faithfulness of God in the promised Savior that is now at hand. He says that God has visited his people in both a spiritual and physical sense. Zechariah begins by blessing God, praising him as the God of Israel, the God of his covenant people whom he chose He has visited his people in both a spiritual and physical sense. He says we can see this first in the way that the Lord visits uh, his saving visitation when Israel bows in worship upon hearing that God has visited and would save them from Pharaoh's oppression in Exodus 4. The visitation and redemption of Israel will become a reality through Jesus as the son of David. The reference to David indicates that the Lord will visit redeem and save his people through a Davidic king and fulfillment of the covenant made with David in 1 Samuel 17. He is the triumphant and conquering king, and Zechariah proclaims that this king is now at hand. Zechariah continues to reference Old Testament teachers in verses 70 and 75. The deliverance of the people fulfills the covenant made with the ancestors, the covenant enacted with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis 12, 18, 28, the covenant represents God's grace and mercy towards his people. What, as he makes reference to all these things and he takes us on a journey through scripture, what he's saying here, what he's essentially doing is saying, when you think of the covenant faithfulness of God, you can't just look at your own life. No, you have to look at all of redemptive history to see the fullness of God's faithfulness. All the way back in Genesis 3 when God clothed Adam and Eve in animal skins, signifying that redemption would come through shed blood. And when he promises that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And as you move through history, through the exodus, the judges, the, the united kingdom, the divided kingdom, and the, the return back to Israel after the exile, the covenants with Abraham, Noah, Moses, and David, and see how at every turn, every step of the way, God has been faithful to his people and unfaithful People. No, when you think of God's faithfulness, go all the way back to the beginning and see how at every turn he has been faithful to what he's promised. And now as Zechariah has a son whom He told, who he's told will prepare the way for the coming Messiah, he bursts out in praise towards God because redemption is at hand. God has visited his people and will rescue them from their affliction. When he considers all that God has done and what he is doing, how can he do anything but bow down and worship to God? This is the blessing that Zechariah offers to God, recognition for who he is, the faithful God of the covenants and the redeemer of his people. In these final few verses, Zechariah begins to bless God for the role that his son will play in the life of Jesus. But again, notice where the attention goes. Zechariah doesn't boast about his son and how great he will be, but rather about the one to whom his son will point to. John will announce to the world the Christ and prepare the way for the Lord. In saying that John prepares the way for the Lord, Zechariah draws on Malachi 3.1 here. It says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Drawing also on Isaiah 43, in, a, in which a way is prepared for the Lord in the wilderness. So we see in verse 80 that John is in the wilderness. John will go before the Lord. And in doing so, he will provide knowledge of salvation. And this knowledge will be attained through the forgiveness of sins. We read later of how John calls upon people to repent for the, forgi- for the forgiveness of sins in Luke 3. And in light of Luke's entire gospel, we know that forgiveness is granted through Jesus' name and it's secured through his death. And forgiveness stems from the covenant of mercy from the Lord, from his grace and kindness. Because of his mercy, the text says, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. The sunrise sheds light on those in darkness, on those who live in the shadow of death. In Luke 179, we have a clear allusion to Isaiah 9, too, as we just celebrated Christmas and the coming of Christ. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. The light here is the branch, the sunrise, the Messiah. He is the Son, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. Zechariah knows people are in darkness. People are in death and lack peace because of their sin. And yet the sunrise has come to shine his saving light and to bring life and freedom where there once was death. This is why Zechariah and Elizabeth brag on God and give praise and blessing to God. Because the God of all mercy is faithful to his covenant. as faithful to his word. And now they stand on the precipice of the birth of the Savior of the world. The one who would condescend from heaven to be born and ultimately die for their sins. For my sins and for your sins. That in him we might have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. So, what are we to do with this text? Do we just leave here and say we learned some things, or how do we actually apply this text? How do we leave here and enter the new year in light of this text? I think the most immediate is to believe in the one whom Zechariah prophesied about, the one whom John would prepare the way for, to enter into the new year fully assured that Christ has lived and died for our sins, and that because of everything he has done and nothing that we have done, we stand before God as righteous. And I've mentioned a few other things throughout, but I want to leave you and challenge you with this. I first heard this from a pastor that I had the privilege of sitting under in Augusta named George Robertson. He told the story of Francis Schaeffer, who was a Presbyterian minister up until his death in 1984? Schaefer is a fairly well known pastor and theologian. And at one point in his ministry, he decided to do an entire study and sermon series on Moses. He was struggling with his own significance, his own calling in life. He had grown up in a home with a father who was rather cruel to him. And so his whole life he wrestled with anger and self doubt. And so he did this study on Moses. And in particular, he focused on Moses' staff. Schaefer titled his original sermon in this study God So Used a Stick of Wood. The idea that a stick is just a stick, but yielded to God, it becomes the rod of God. He later reflected on this chapter of a a book he wrote, and he the title of that chapter is No Little People, No Small Places. This is what he says, and I think this would benefit all of us to hear. God so used a stick of wood can be a banner cry for each of us. Though we are limited and weak in talent, physical energy, psychological strength, we are not less than a stick of wood. But as the rod of Moses had to become the rod of God, so that which is me must become the me of God. Then I can become useful in God's hands. The scripture emphasizes that much can come from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. There are no little people and no big people in the true spiritual sense, but only consecrated and unconsecrated people consecrated people. It's not a word that you probably hear a lot or use in your everyday interactions. It means simply to set apart or to be used by God for a holy purpose in a holy fashion. And it's what this text calls us to, to devote ourselves, to consecrate ourselves to this God who is the God of little people and little places. Think of what we've read so far in Luke. God takes an elderly couple far beyond childbearing years and gives them a son. A son who would prepare the way for the savior of the world. And Zechariah was simply going about his business. He was one of 3,000 or so priests. And yet God showed him mercy and used him. Not because of how great he was, but because he would be consecrated to him. And on the other side... God takes a poor teenage virgin girl and looks on her with favor, not because she is better than anyone else, and uses her to bring about the Savior of the world. Two opposite ends of the spectrum the impossible of old age, the impossibility of young age, and God uses them. Some of you may be thinking going into 2024, I'm too old. I don't know enough, I'm too weak, nobody cares what I have to say, I'm too young, I'm too busy, I'm not talented enough, and yet you are not less than a stick. All of us can be useful to God regardless of whatever shortcomings we can come up with in our minds if we consecrate ourselves to him. God loves to take small things and make them mighty things because it shows what a God he is, what a powerful, merciful, gracious God he is. As we go into the new year, I want each of us to consider and ponder what might God use me for if I would just open my hands and say, my life is yours, use me. And, friends, why can and should we devote ourselves to Him? For the very reason Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Mary all do. Because He is faithful. Because the Savior has come. Let's pray.